the ASCO Leadership Podcast. Welcome to the Trust Askell podcast. My name is Rob Robson and I'm the Askell Trust Leadership Consultant. This is the second part of the podcast with Julian Drinkle, who is the CEO of the Academy's Enterprise Trust, or AET as it's commonly known. In this part, we pick up from Julian's point about the importance of teams. And I start with this challenge. Your determination to make teams a key feature of improvement sometimes goes against the dominant narrative, or certainly in the past we've had a dominant narrative of the hero underdog, the idea that actually one person can turn something around, one person can rescue a school or a trust. How do you overcome that so that the team becomes the most important part of the mechanism for improvement? I think there are a number of avenues there. I mean, first of all, take the underdog analogy. I mean, so often the underdog analogy is applied to a team situation. You know, you have a sports team that might be chock full of the greatest stars in that particular sport. But the underdog often is a team that unites really well together and the sum of the parts is greater. I think there's a sort of tendency a little bit for terms of the sort of cult of leader that, you know, we all of us have to an extent in our sort of psychological makeup, a deference to authority. I think all of us, there's an appeal to, of deference to someone who has a greater technical capability, a a greater authority, someone who will save us. And I just think that that is fallacious and wrong. And I think we see it in the school arena so often that sometimes a caped hero, super head teacher is brilliant for a few years and then they've drunk too much of their own Kool-Aid and they don't have that ability to adapt and morph to a new situation. You know, they, they've fallen in love a little bit with their glory days. Think also about the number of times head teachers do a, an amazing job at one school in one particular location, and then they head off to another school and they don't have the antennae to read that the situation is different. The parents are somewhat different. The children are a little bit different. The the staff are different as well. So I'm a big fan. And when I look at schools and you think about the sustainability of school improvement and you think about a school really moving on, there does need to be distributed leadership. Don't get me wrong, the person who is in charge does need to have that ability to marshal the resources around them, to bring together a team, to to look at what are the sort of most important factors, to prioritise, to encourage, to challenge. So I'm not denying the role, but it is a distributed leadership that will make something enduring and sustainably good. And there's the sense in which if that team has that level of confidence, they also bestow, I think, greater capability on on the leader for that leader to maybe scan in a slightly more futuristic or imaginative type of way. So the school structure is in many ways one of the few serious authority leadership structures I think in the world, when you look around, we've all moved to more distributed models, some models, you know, the military model, prison and justice models and school models as well. But I think there is plenty of room for caped crusaders, but we need 
lots and lots of superheroes working together. And, and that's when you see really great results. And as the CEO, how do you make sure that you haven't drank too much of your own Kool-Aid? It's incredibly important to be constantly listening and promoting and developing people, challenging oneself. I mentioned the situation of being on the dance floor versus being up on the balcony. I think one needs to be challenging always the mode that one is in. So I've got a few dichotomies that I'm always asking myself. One of them, is this a technical problem or is it an adaptive problem? And I think all of us, just as we were talking a little moment ago about authority, I think there's a slight tendency for people to assume that a situation requires a technical solution, that somehow there's some facts or there's a theory or there's a logic um, that needs to be followed. And again, I think it's a sort of natural tendency for people to want there to be some kind of objective solution. And I think the simple truth of the matter is that that very often just isn't the case. It's normally relational problems. It's normally about getting people to work together. And, and, and therefore, if the problem is effectively an adaptive one, you need to be asking yourself the whole time, how do I fine tune and adjust this? What's going on around me? Why are different stakeholders reacting in different ways? Who's getting on with whom? Where is the dissonance? Where is the upset? And I think it's the bringing together of these dichotomies that prevents one ever from sort of imagining that there is only one way to, to do things. And I think one needs to look externally, what's going on around my school, my staff, my parents, my community, my students, who are the different groups, who's collaborating successfully, who's struggling and maybe in a more confrontational mode. And then I think one has to do that work internally as well. You know, we all respond in different ways and to look sort of internally and know one's own strengths and weaknesses and realize maybe where one has had a you know, predisposition or one hasn't had the flexibility to change one's style and approach. So to do leadership well, you need to be constantly taking soundings from other people. I think you need to put yourself under the microscope and acknowledge your own strengths and weaknesses and particular directions. And I think as so long as you're listening to other people and you're listening to yourself in an open, honest way, one hopefully won't get trapped in that sort of situation where, as you say, one's drunk too much of one's own Kool-Aid. One of the things I think you've hinted at, but I'd just like to explore a little bit more, is the importance of innovation, doing things differently. Does that feature in your thinking? Yes, hugely so. I think if it is important to set a vision for where an organization needs to go. Now, I described to you at, at AT that in the beginning, there was such a burning platform just to take action and get problems sorted out. But part of that trust and engagement that I think is important in any stage was once the team had started to succeed was to try and involve everyone in a really good conversation about what the vision, mission, and values of the organization were. And in the case of AT, we very much picked up on that inclusion theme. And we came up with a vision which was 
each and every child inspired to lead a remarkable life. And, and the idea there was that we're there to help every single child to make progress and, and that our responsibility is not just within the school, but is, is beyond school as well. So we created that kind of um, vision. And then it becomes very important, I think, to be able to imagine what that means for individual children and to try and make that really specific. And almost by definition, that will mean that one needs to do things differently. Here we are in place A today. We want to go up far away to place B, which is a rather more exciting and interesting place. And of course, we don't have perfect control over our circumstances and situation. And on that journey between A and B, there'll be lots of things that happen to us. There'll be things that were unexpected, things that we didn't know about. So it's terribly important to have that flexibility. And I think a lot of that journey from A to B is about balancing innovation and creativity with the excitement that that brings, but also the fears and uncertainties that that brings as well, with a sort of commitment to the well-being of everyone who is, is around you. And so I think that leadership journey is about innovating, creating some debate, creating a little bit of creative tension, dissonance, turning the temperature up, turning the volume up, but then knowing when to moderate and regulate that, when to sort of reassure people, um, calm things down. And of course, you know, everyone in an organization moves at a different um, speed and a different pace. But that ability to both commit and to be flexible and adaptable, I think is incredibly important. And it ties back a bit to talking a little bit about sort of leadership styles, talking a little bit about organizational structures and culture. I'm a very strong believer that a, a culture and an organization needs to be able to have that flexibility and adaptability, needs to be able to sort of seek innovation. That the second you feel that you're in the right place and you just want to maintain the status quo and the legacy, that's when things start to go wrong. So that emphasis that you've just mentioned around innovation is terribly important. And I think there are ways to both stimulate and excite people to be innovative and, and creative, while at the same time reassuring them that the pace and nature of that change is manageable as well. One of the changes that's been thrust upon us, whether we liked it or not, was the whole advent of remote learning. And I know that your background in terms of working on digital platforms gave you a, a passion for that particular innovation. Do you think there's a way that we as an education system should be designing forward now, thinking about using this thing that's been, as I say, thrust upon us, but now is here, for the future? Rob, absolutely. I mean, none of us um, would choose to be in the sort of crisis situation that we have been in. But, you know, my goodness, we've learned a lot, I think, about ourselves. And I think we've learned a lot about our capabilities. And I think the opportunities for using virtual learning, you know, much more cleverly to the benefit of our students in the future definitely exists. Actually, this is another one of those examples. People, we talk about virtual learning, and of course, people instantly think about technology. They think about devices. They think about do children have laptops? Do they have access to, to broadband? But of course, it's 
it's much, much more diverse and important than than that. Of course, we need to make sure that children have, and I think everyone's very conscious at the moment of the extent of the digital divide and that there are a lot of children that don't have access to technology or to broadband. But it's also a really important social and behavioral trend. So at AT, for example, as we've thought about virtual learning, we spent a lot of time investing in devices. We acquired 15,000 Chromebooks. And we handed out 2,000 Wi-Fi devices. We created a policy whereby we want every single one of our children to be technologically in, uh, enabled. And we focused initially with the most disadvantaged children, those that are either you know, vulnerable, EHCP, free school meals, et cetera, et cetera. But we've done an awful lot more than that because we've also been thinking about virtual learning as a source of well-being for our children, a source of helping to take care of their, their mental health, their confidence levels, ways of managing anxiety. And we've also thought very hard about virtual learning as a source of fun and engagement. And now I know that might sound a little bit sort of improbable, but we have, for example, in the case of fun, we at AT created a, a festival of remarkable lives, a whole set of events and, and competitions that uh, our students and, and pupils could, could engage in. And that culminated actually in the creation of a YouTube TV channel where literally for one day we had the best part of 50,000 people sharing wonderful entertainment, wonderful events, wonderful achievements with children performing, showing off, um, but empathizing and engaging with each other. It was you know, absolutely wonderful. We got Sam and Mark, the CBB's presenters, to host that particular event for us. So, you know, we believe that you can do the hard edge of learning doing this properly, but you can have an enormous amount of fun. We've also, you know, really focused in on, on the well-being side. All of our technology is loaded up with software that covers a number of safeguarding functions. So we're tracking very carefully the website's that our staff and our um, students are engaged with, identifying if there are any red flags around inappropriate um, websites. And of course, we've had the opportunity to identify and deal with difficulties before they've um, you know, got out of hand. Um, likewise, on the well-being side, we've done each and every child check-ins. We've gone child by child to work out what their experience, their own personal individual experience of the lockdown has been whether their difficulties have been social ones whether their difficulties have been learning ones whether their situation at home is a source of stress or, or reassurance um, so a ton of check-in work with each of our children we've done an awful lot of work around sort of psychometrics um, and trying to understand which of our children might be having problems or not so I think we're entering a realm where the crisis, I think, has emotionally led all of us to be much more empathetic, much more understanding. I think we've all come to realise that, you know, we're in a problem situation together and we need to look out for each other and do that very much on a case-by-case, individual-by-individual basis. So I, I think that our, our empathy our consideration, our respect, our kindness towards each other has risen dramatically. And I think the technology has allowed us to sort of exploit that reality in the best possible way, where we've been able to 
connect people and get people to, to participate. I don't for a moment want to underplay the huge amount of difficulty and damage that this crisis has caused and the fact that it's going to take us a long, long time to resolve all of these issues. But I do think we've got at our disposal, you know, an awful lot of tools that can be really helpful with that. And I think we've uh, discovered a humanity that helps us to find a will to do something about it. That approach and the sheer scale of what you're able to do at AET is, is presumably one of the upsides of a large trust as well, that you get what sounds like an economy of scale, but you also get some considerable knowledge and, and different ideas and inputs in. I think in the, in the crisis, you know, there is a sense in which multi-academy trusts have come into their, into their own, that their strength, the virtues of size have come to the fore. But I think it's the it's the virtues of diversity that come to the fore even more. So, I mean, at AET, you know, we pride ourselves as being possibly the most national trust in the country, that we possibly have the most diversity in terms of types of schools. You know, we do it. We have five special schools. We have 31 primary schools, you know, 21 secondary schools. We do rural locations, we do inner city locations, we have small schools, we have large schools, and we have had some benefits of economies of scale. So certainly when we went out and bought all that technology, when we've gone to our suppliers, when we put forward, you know, £250,000 in the first lockdown for free school meals, our size certainly allowed us to sort of have procurement scale. We certainly had some sort of buying power. But, but the thing really has been much more the economies of, of expertise, the, the sheer range of capabilities that exist within AET has been fantastic. And we've been able to join up schools at totally opposite ends of the, of the country. We've got that expertise. We either have people who really understand sort of attendance or behavior or safeguarding or who are fantastic subject experts or who have a particular sort of extracurricular passion and we've really been trying to promote these skills and these passions and we've been able to act a little bit like a a, a cooperative a little bit like a a fellowship a little bit like a a social network where we've been able to join people up and people have been able to self-select the expertise that they want. And this comes back a little bit to the point we were talking about, about sort of organisations and their ability to innovate. I have made absolutely sure that at AT we don't organise ourselves around a number of traditional models. For example, there are a number of traditional models that have very high levels of, of middle management or that have very high levels of regional and geographical management. And at AT, we don't want to spend money on, on overhead. We don't want to spend um, money on compliance and things like that. We want to be investing in talent, in people with real skills and knowledge and expertise. And I think organizing, I quite often think of us as being, and we talk about ourselves as being a neural network. And there's a real economy associated with that. A neural network is incredibly efficient the right information goes to the right people. And some people are in broadcast mode, some people are in receive mode, but everyone is working in a really agile, flexible way, getting the knowledge, the expertise that they want 
without wasting money on structures and processes um, that are that are counterproductive. So that's a little bit the way that we've found ourselves. We've certainly had some economies of scale, but it's much more around economies of scope and expertise and, and knowledge and running those in really efficient ways where people can tap into absolutely world-class expertise. I think we can now say that we reveal if that's the right word i'm not sure it is but we can say that you're leaving state education in england in order to work again with one of your passions which is worldwide education as well what state do you leave state education in i think we're in a really interesting situation in the uk i think there's a huge opportunity to learn from what's happened over the last 12 months. And so I think it's in our gift to really move things along in an incredibly positive way or to fail to take advantage of the situation. You know, I think one of the things that most people have agreed on is that there's a sense in which the crisis has has acted like a lens, like a a magnifying glass. And a, a lot of the things that we found out are actually things that we knew existed prior to the crisis and they've somehow become magnified and amplified so of course we are all worried about disadvantage we're all worried about gaps being created all over the country whether it's to do with technology whether it's to do with with mental health and well-being you know all sorts of different parameters and so i think that we've actually got a much better understanding of what has or hasn't been working you know, I think the government and, and DFE have evolved over the course of this period. There's obviously been a lot of anxiety and upset along the way. But I think all of us in the school system, whether we're in schools or whether we're involved on the on the policy side, we know a bit more what it is that we need to deal with and address. And I think we've been challenged. I think we've been challenged to, to innovate, to think of, of new and different ways. But I do think the key thing is going to be to scale up that knowledge and insight really quickly. It's going to take real willpower and real investment to make sure that those gaps that we've all identified do get really properly um, addressed. I also think, and as I go into you know my new role internationally, one of the things that I'm looking forward to is joining up education with various other forms of human and social um, development. I I come from a development background. My own sort of academic interest has been in in the developing world, has been in human, social, and economic um, capital. I used to teach a class at um, Harvard, why are the rich so rich and the poor so poor? You know, the wealth and poverty of nations. And I do think that we're going to have to be more joined up human beings here in the UK if we're gonna make things work. So the DfE needs to be able to work more closely with DCMS to make sure that the technology and ed tech provision is better. You know, the BBC have now started to move into educational content. We all know that laptops haven't got to the right people in the right places at the right time. We all know that there are problems about access to um, broadband, be that fixed broadband or mobile broadband. So education is going to have to work more closely with DCMS to make sure that technology and technology enablers and educational content are delivered better. But by a similar token, we're going to have to work more closely with the Department for Health and Social Care 
to make sure that the physical and mental health of all of our children uh, is working better. We are clearly in the midst of a, a well-being tsunami. So to be able to join up with social services and health services to make sure that we are addressing the very specific needs of our individual children, I, I think is going to be incredibly important. The third area, which I think is going to be incredibly important, we're only just getting a whiff of this now, is, is with regard to economic development and employability. You know, the stats have just come out, the number of young people who are subjected to restructuring and unemployment has tripled over the course of the last 12 months. And that's going to be a, a bigger deal. So for education to ally itself with employers in the public and the private sector is going to be another big area where we, we need to be joined up. So I feel we've learned a lot and I just hope that we we learn the lessons, we join up um, a little bit more closely, we think with a higher level of, uh, of, of anticipation and work a little bit more collaboratively. And I'd like to think that um, it's going to take a while, well, it's going to take a while I would like to think there's a big opportunity to improve the state of, uh, of, of, of education dramatically, notwithstanding we've all suffered you know, a massive shock, which is going to take a little while to turn around. Dylan, can you tell us a little bit about where you're going and why you're going? For that particular role, I mean. I've been offered this wonderful opportunity to work for what I think is probably the largest international school group in the world. It's a not-for-profit group, and it provides schooling and education in 15 different countries around the world. These are very largely developing countries. So a lot of the, a lot of the schools are in the Indian subcontinent, in Afghanistan, Pakistan, and India, in, in the Middle East, uh, sometimes in conflict countries like Syria, uh, in Eastern Africa, uh, so Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, and Southern Africa as well. And I've been asked to pull together a sort of super agency of all these diff um, different schools on behalf of the Aga Khan's development network. So there's a real focus here on some of the most disadvantaged communities in the world. Some of my sort of performance metrics will be how to get more girls into education in communities where they traditionally have not been to school, you know, in places like Afghanistan and, and Pakistan. One of the big appeals is obviously the opportunity to do the same kind of work I'm doing at AET, but on a much larger scale. So there are about 100,000 direct students against, you know, AET's 32,000. And then there are about 2 million children who are indirectly involved through government um, programs. So I am terribly excited at the prospect of trying to help a number of communities that um, you know, have really big challenges with regard to, to education. But one of the other tremendous things about the Aga Khan Development Network is that it does take a holistic view to education. And so the other agencies, um, aside from the education one that, um, that I will be heading up, are to do with things like health, infrastructure, microfinance, sustainability, heritage and culture. And so in these countries, the opportunity to bring these things together, I think is terribly important. And when you ask me the question about how we can do in the UK, it will be because we can join these things together. So when I was having the conversation with His Highness the Aga Khan about education in Afghanistan, we were talking about how do we 
access remote areas like Bamiyan and Badakhshan in Afghanistan, they have partnerships or ownership in the mobile telephone operators. So there's the opportunity to do that. Through microfinance and the economic development agencies, there's the opportunity to try and work out career paths for the students uh, in our schools. So I'm terribly excited at the prospect of trying to do this on a larger international scale, building a, a community of children to be global students and global citizens, and to have that opportunity to meld all these other development initiatives, which I think are so incredibly important and which we've all come to realise here in the UK, that if we do them well, it'll make a difference. And if we don't, it'll be very difficult to, uh, to, to change children's and young people's prospects. Thank you, Julian. And of course, we wish you the very, very best of luck with that. I'm sure it's going to be a really exciting journey as well. I'm going to finish with my traditional question, which I ask all of our podcast interviewees, which is that leadership is a stressful job and it can be all consuming if we let it. So how do you take off the mantle of leadership? How do you stop yourself from being consumed by it? Part of it, I think, does lie in how one exercises um, leadership more generally. And then I do think that there are some personal sort of anchors and, and reference points that uh, give one some reprieve from the hardships and the, and the rigours of, of, of leadership. But I do think that if one takes this adaptive stance, this flexible stance to leadership, where you're always appraising what's the context, what's the situation, what are different people telling you, um, and, and you're listening as well as forming views, I do think that that helps one to develop the kind of perspective, not just for practicing effective leadership, but also for making sure that you have a balance and perspective in your own life. So I, I think the way that one conducts oneself in one's leadership style does make an enormous um, difference. But I personally, um, I have a, a number of anchors, personal anchors, and a number of releases. I immensely interested in parts of the world. I love different people's stories. I'm a big consumer of media. I love to read. I love to watch. I love to listen. And I find that I draw energy from other people's interests, from their diversity, from their pleasure. I enjoy nothing more than hearing the stories and seeing other people who are who feel like they're leading a remarkable life and who, who are enjoying that. And that, that sustains me and gives me a huge amount of energy. So I think that that's probably my, those are my main releases, um, Rob. But, you know, on the way of, by way of sort of different um, perspectives, that ability to spend time with other people, but also to spend time with those who you're particularly near and dear to. So my family, we love to do fairly adventurous holidays. We go to countries and locations and places which other people probably wouldn't consider to be a holiday, but for, for us, it gives us, you know, real food for thought. So I think, you know, my, what I would say to everyone is do find those things that give you joy, that give you reassurance, that give you um, solace, and uh, to actively seek those things out while at the same time challenging oneself. Hopefully one can get the blend right in, in doing all of that. That's been absolutely fascinating, Julian. Thank you so much for joining us today. And I'm absolutely certain that 
people will have really enjoyed your insights and thoughts. And as I said earlier, we wish you the very best of luck in your next adventure as well. Rob, thank you very much for, for a super set of questions. <laughs> the Askold Leadership Podcast. 